0: So in many respects, we're in a bit of a three-part mini-series in the midst of our six-year Roman series. So hopefully that gives you some hope that we're making our way. Um, But essentially, it's all about this little mini-series, these three uh, passages in a row. It's really about how do we respond to being wronged? How do we react to evil in the world? How do we react to evil in our lives? You see, last week we focus on the general meaning of blessing rather than cursing someone who has persecuted us, someone who has wronged us. And next Sunday, we'll look at our response, or rather how God's response and our response is meant to reshape our hearts, meant to reshape community. And today, then we'll focus in the middle of those bookends um, of what we'll be considering is ultimately how we should and shouldn't respond to evil. So first, we're given the sort of general picture of what it means to respond to being wronged, and then we'll look next week at how that reshapes community. And today, we're going to look at how should we and how should we not respond to evil. That's what I'd like to talk about. Specifically, what are the healthy and unhealthy ways, if you will, to respond to evil? And perhaps that's a message in and of itself, that there are healthy and unhealthy ways to respond To evil, and I believe that's what the Lord desires to shape in our community today. You see, Paul has this twofold instruction here in verse 17. Don't repay evil for evil, and instead, what does he say? Give thought. Think about it. I want to mention, as we begin to explore this. Along the way, I think because of this text and because the nature of the way that God addresses evil throughout the Scriptures in a very direct and real way, not in an a ethereal or highbrow or vague way, He's very clear through His Word. I, I want to mention that some of what we discuss might be disturbing to some of you. D- depending on your story or your own experience of abuse or of being harmed, especially by those who are closest to you, My desire in being clear and direct about these things is not to cause undue harm, it's to be clear about darkness, and it's to be clear about who Jesus is as the light of the gospel coming into this world. And so I I will do my best to give you another heads up if and when those things… come up. But generally speaking, in order to be faithful to God's Word, we have to be clear and specific. I think one of the church's greatest omissions, if you will, or greatest sins throughout the history of talking about evil is we talk about it generally and not specifically. We talk about evil out there or evil in here, but never actually name evil. And one of the things that evil hates is to be named. It hates to be addressed directly. And so we'll follow our passage this way today. We'll look at unhealthy responses to evil, then we'll look at healthy responses to evil, and then ultimately we'll look at God's response to evil. So unhealthy, healthy, and then God's response, and we'll spend much more time on the first two points because I started writing those two points and I was like, that pretty much communicates the third, so forgive me. But there's still three points because that's how God speaks in threes. So we're going to keep uh, that. Pray with me before we continue. Heavenly Father, Your Word is truth, it's light, it's beauty, it's joy, and it's such a great help in this present cultural moment that we find ourselves in. Sometimes when we face evil, we don't know what to call it, and so I pray You'd equip us to do so today. Sometimes when we face evil... We have these instincts, these guttural reflexes about how to respond, and so I pray, Father, You'd help us to be aware of that more today. Um, Some of us don't consider Your Word at all when evil shows up, whether in naming it or responding to it, and so I pray You would equip us through Your Holy Spirit, through Your Word, to know what it means to be people of truth, to be people of righteousness, who name and speak about sin and evil directly. Um, and give us the mind of Christ that Philippians 2 talks about so that we'll, we'll, we'll think about how to respond. This is really hard. It's easy to preach about this, Father. It is hard to incarnate it and live it. And so I pray uh, that as a people, would you cultivate something in, a, in us today, a responsiveness, a healthy responsiveness to evil in a way that makes much of Jesus, in a way that causes curiosity in a way that uh, brings justice, in a way that brings healing. We thank you that you're a God who knows and names and responds to evil. We thank you that you are not a passive God in the skies who just watches things unfold. You are a very present help in time of trouble. And so I pray that all of that, Father, as we consider that today, would shape us and make us more like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, look at the first half of the verse with me. Paul simply says, Romans 12, verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Now, there's only one reason why Paul would have to say this to the Romans, and there's only one reason why I believe God's Spirit desires to communicate this to us today, because we have an instinct to get even, right? It just makes sense to us. You do something to me, I'm going to do something to you. Our impulse is to repay evil with evil. In other words, in our brokenness, we respond to evil in some pretty unhealthy ways. And Jesus even knew this. Flip to the left if you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 5. So through... Acts on and through the Gospels to the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5 verse 38 through 39, where Jesus' words are recorded in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's three chapters in Matthew. Uh, The fullest uh, record of the Sermon on the Mount here is found in Matthew. And I think he is sure to instruct in the middle of this his readers about resisting this natural urge. Matthew chapter 5 verse 38 and 39 says, "'You have heard it uh, was said.'" an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So Jesus highlights this inclination to get even. He says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. That's the first unhealthy response to evil that we see in the Bible, which is simply this, joining evil joining evil, participating in evil, mirroring back the evil that we've experienced. We join it, and in doing so, we repay then evil for evil. We move with the flow of human sinfulness in other words and use hurtful words, hurtful behavior, mean-spirited thoughts even, right? You're thinking, you're planning how to respond to this person's behavior or words and in many respects have left a thought unguarded, In other words, we've returned evil for evil in our minds, in our words, and in our actions. But if you listen closely to what Jesus says here in Matthew 5, he's actually quoting Scripture. It's a quotation from Exodus. Moses was transcribing the law for God's people in actually a very sensitive subject. And this is one of those moments that might be very troubling to us. He was detailing the difference in Exodus chapter 21, between the regulations of justice if a man hits a pregnant woman. There are two different kinds of rules that were in place. One, if harm came to that baby, and two, if harm didn't. Now, if harm was caused to the baby, Moses says in Exodus chapter 21, verses 23 through 25, then… He says, you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. At first blush, this may seem perfectly reasonable to us. Perfectly reasonable. This is what justice looks like, we might think. For others, this may simply seem like returning evil for evil. Famously, Gandhi criticized this Old Testament text. If you've heard it, he said, an eye for an eye will what? Only make the whole world blind. But what's this passage actually mean? What's Jesus getting at at when he quotes this Exodus passage in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, in Moses' day, there seems to have been a tendency to not only repay evil for evil, in other words, not even just get even, but escalate the evil to prove a point, to try to protect or make sure that whoever hurt you knows you don't hurt me like that ever again. So they escalated the evil. The offended party would retaliate then in disproportionate ways. And so the law was instituted by God actually for the sake of justice. According to scholar John Hanna, it meant to restrict exacting of punishment to what was equitable. And so what Jesus is doing in Matthew 5 is he's elevating the expectation for his followers even higher than Moses. He is telling us through the Sermon on the Mount, don't do what is equitable, do what is loving. He's not just saying, don't just seek justice, seek to demonstrate affection. He goes on. Look at verse 40 there in Matthew 5. And if anyone would sue you take your, and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. <laughs> and if anyone forces you to walk a mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. In other words, don't just join evil. When evil shows up, when you, someone is trying to take advantage of you, love them. Love them. That's the first unhealthy response is that we simply join evil. And Jesus, through the, the words of Paul, uh, invites us to resist that urge. There's another way, I think, that we respond to evil in some pretty unhealthy ways, and that's we ignore evil altogether. We just turn our our eyes away from it. In December of 1966, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke to Congress about this very thing. He said, "...all too many of those who live in affluent America ignore those who exist in poor in America." In doing so, the affluent Americans will eventually have to face themselves with the question that Eichmann chose to ignore. How responsible am I for the well-being of my fellows? And here's what he says famously. To ignore evil is to become an accomplice to it. Adolf Eichmann was the chief architect of the Holocaust. And Dr. King is equating the behavior that we have often to ignore evil with that of one of the most extraordinary evils in our world's history. See, ignoring evil is contrary to the heart of God. Though it might feel safe to ignore evil, it might feel secure, like to just stay out of it. That's all it is. It's just a feeling. See, when we overlook evil, which is whether directly or indirectly affecting us, we become co-conspirators, if you will, in this destructive agenda of evil. Evil doesn't want you to give its attention. Evil does not want you to pay attention. Evil wants to persist in the dark. In response to the numbness of God's people toward idolatry, Moses commanded in Deuteronomy 13, you shall purge the evil from among you. In other words, don't just ignore it, deal with it. Deal with it. We don't ignore evil. That just gives birth to a different kind of evil. And yet this is often a tendency for us as well. If we don't join evil, we ignore it. Now you might be thinking, sweet, sweet. I don't ignore evil, and I don't join evil, so I get a pass in today's sermon, right? Let's, let's keep thinking. Let's keep thinking. There's one more way that I think that we often respond to evil in an unhealthy way, which may seem really noble at first blush, which is we judge evil, and we judge the evil person. Now, that may seem really, really good. It might seem like a really nice thing to do, and you might even have a verse to back up that kind of ethic. Knowing what is evil, though and calling it evil is a way to judge evil. But there's another understanding of judgment as well. We must be very careful then to know the difference between discernment and judgment. The Scriptures command us to be discerning but not judgmental. See, discerning is a way of seeking righteousness. Judgmentalism is a way of acting righteous, Discernment knows what is of the Lord and what is not. Judgment acts like we've got nothing that's not of the Lord in us, and everybody else does. This distinction is perhaps most clear at the end of Jesus' sermon, so turn to the right if you're still in Matthew 5, to Matthew chapter 7, one of the most misused texts in all of the Bible, so God help us as we explore this text by your Holy Spirit to know the truth. See, at the beginning of his final movement, here's how Jesus warns his readers, his followers, rather. Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how could you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. Jesus says, first take the log out of your own eye, And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, the error Jesus is exposing here is not about what we see, the speck. It's about what we don't see, the log. Are you with me? He's not criticizing and saying there's not a speck in your brother's eye. He's saying there's a log in yours, which would be a really good idea to deal with first. Right? So seeing the speck then, church, that's discernment. Not seeing the plank, that's judgment. See, Jesus is not critiquing the fact that we might see evil in the life of someone else. Jesus is critiquing the fact that we rarely see it in our own lives. And in fact, many have suggested that the only reason Jesus calls it a speck is because it's much closer. It's not because it's worse than the brother. It's because from your vantage point, it's a log. (laughs) It is that much bigger, and how easy it is to point out the speck somewhere else when we won't deal with the same issue in our own life. And so he says, first deal with the evil in your heart, and then what does he say? Then you can clearly see. Deal with what's going on in your life, then you can clearly see. This does not mean be perfect before you dare say anything to anyone else. It means to live with integrity. You know, that would look a lot different if you go to a sister or brother and you go, I've been dealing with this thing a lot in my life and here's how the Lord has been working on that in me and I wonder if that's something that you face as well. It's very different than you've got something in your eye and we should deal with it. And they're like, yo, homie, you can't even see me because there's a, you know, it's a way of living with integrity. So I wonder, church, how are you most inclined to repay evil for evil? Is it by joining is it by judging? Is it by ignoring? I think if we're honest, there's often a very unhealthy, instinctual response to evil. We, we join it, we ignore it, we judge it. In any case, we fail to do what Paul here says next, give thought to what is good. So how do we do that? How do we respond to evil in a healthy way? Let's keep reading. Now back to Romans chapter 12, verse 17. <clears throat> he says that in its entirety… Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is noble in the sight of all. That phrase, give thought to what is noble, is really means to consider deeply. In other words, I think what we can learn right away is when we consider something deeply, when we marinate on it, when we meditate on it, we're not going to instinctively respond. We're not going to just judge, we're not just going to ignore, we're not just going to join, we're going to consider deeply and respond very differently. So first and foremost, the healthy response to evil is to think. Are you with me? How weird would this be today? Instead of responding emotionally from the guttural instincts of our soul, we think, wait a second, what's going on? Why is that evil? Why does that bother me? Why do I want to punch them in response, right? What is going on in my soul that is bringing up these feelings of getting even? Are you with me, church? Can you imagine if that's that's all we did today? We just thought for a second. You know, one of the lies that we believe is this is such an instant culture that in order to be relevant, we've got to respond instantly. The scriptures for 2,000 years have been pointing a different way. Sometimes the best thing you can do is just shut up and think. It's okay. That's okay. It's really important to think. It's really important to think because then I can say, okay, is this emotional? Is this spiritual? Is this of the Lord? Is this of me? Is this in God's word? What do my brothers and sisters think? And we begin to interrogate our feelings and our responses so that we can walk in righteousness. Paul draws out this meaning in a couple of verses in verse 21. He says, don't overcome evil. Uh, Do not be overcome rather by evil, but overcome evil with good. We're getting ahead of ourselves, though. That's next week. Marva Don, who many of you know as a a saint in my head and mind, um, has been deeply instructive in this particular chapter and many things. She says about verse 17 that emphasizing thinking prior to, uh, to something so that one can respond appropriately. She continues, think with the utmost care beforehand how our behavior will affect those who observe us. This is one thing that happens when you think a little bit. You go, How will this impact others? Instead of just thinking, What do they deserve? I think, How will this affect my community? How will this affect my children? How will this affect my spouse? How will this affect my brothers and sisters who I'm in community with? And in fact, in some ways, when we begin to think that way, we respond to things that we otherwise ignore. Because of the diverse and different backgrounds that we have, I go, You know what? That didn't hurt me, but I bet it hurt my sister. I bet that idea hurt my brother because I've heard their story, I know what their situation is like, and now I'm going to respond differently than I would. Thinking deeply and considering deeply causes us to speak and live and respond in different ways. So when we join, ignore, or judge evil, we just respond with emotions. And emotions are not bad, but emotions are incomplete. You are more than your emotions. We respond without thought when we do that. Resisting this urge then requires us to think with the mind of Christ. And the good news is you have been given his mind by grace. Philippians 2 promises us that. Now, when we give thought to what is good, I think we'll respond to evil in very different ways, and a few in particular Now, we may not respond to all evil in all the same ways, and I think that's what happens when we think. We go, what kind of response is appropriate here? We don't just have a one-size-fits-all kind of thing, right? We we respond differently to different kinds of evil. In fact, I don't think we should respond to the same way. And so, I'm going to lay out four different responses that are often looked at as evil by some people, but actually are really, really good responses to evil. And we'll Uh, lay them out in increasing levels of severity. In other words, we'll begin by responding to maybe the least evil of things, and then we'll learn to respond to more egregious offenses. Now, that's why I think to think, and we have to pray, we have to consider, it takes a lot of discernment. Sometimes I respond with the utmost severity, and people in my community would really help me go, you know, that's not really that big a deal. Um, And other things I just treat as not a big a deal, and they go, yo, we really need you to say or do something because I feel like you're ignoring what's really happening here. See, we need one another for this discernment. We need God's Spirit. We need His Word. Every evil does not demand the same response. I think that's healthy. That's one of the healthy things a follower of Jesus does, responds to different kinds of evil in different kinds of ways. As I mentioned earlier, I think as we lay these out, some of these may be disturbing, maybe even triggering to ways that we've experienced hurt. And so I pray that as the Lord brings clarity, uh, in this, He'll also bring healing. And He'll also continue to help us uh, walk in wholeness through this. First, I think that we need to respond uh, to evil by confronting it. By confronting it. Calling it, naming it, and addressing it. Jesus gave immensely practical counsel to His disciples about how to address sin and evil with someone. He says this in Matthew chapter 18. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him. For some of us, (laughs) that is like the most revolutionary idea that we could probably ever hear, right? This is not in vogue today. When your brother sins against you, go and tell him, hey, you sinned against me. That's healthy. That's healthy. Not for six months, mulling it over in your head and telling everyone but your brother What your brother did, right? Jesus says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two others with you. Notice, Jesus expands the circle. If you need more advocacy, if you need more stability, if you need more support, go and get two or three or other people to join you and say, I think this is a persistent, sinful issue that is just not being acknowledged. I can't go alone anymore. They're not listening. That every charge may be brought uh, on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So it's even a way of caring for the other individual. Because see, one of the reasons that maybe I just want to address it with this person, the, the other side of this, is because it's really not true and I don't want anybody to correct it. And So I don't actually ask anybody else to walk with me in that because I think maybe the problem will be with me. But when I begin to bring my brothers and sisters in on something that I'm really not finding a way to make reconciliation, it's a way of continuing to clarify what the sin actually is. See, we go to a person alone, we tell them what is evil, sinful, and how it's hurt us, and then perhaps a couple others come along with us if that doesn't work. If the evil persists, we even escalate, the Scriptures tell us, to bring it to the church. And Jesus, I think, is getting at something really important here, that one of the first and healthy responses to evil is to call it evil and to address it with the one who has said that thing, who has hurt us. We simply respond to them directly. Now, another level of response might be accountability. Accountability is good, and it is very different than judgment. Accountability is not judgmentalism. Accountability is not ridicule. It's not gossip or a means of tearing someone down. Accountability is about righteousness. It's about holiness. It's about upholding the integrity of another person or of a community. Paul encourages the church in Galatia this way, in Galatians chapter 6, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression… You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then he has reason to boast, will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load." This is a really important passage for us to go to if we feel as though for ourselves or someone else that growth is not taking place, that accountability is not being received, that structure or discipleship. You know, some of the words that should never come out of a Christian's mouth within Christian community is you can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me what to do. Now, to be sure someone might be wrong, to be sure someone may not have authority, but this sort of bland and broad accusation that no one can tell me what to do is sort of (laughs) anti-Christian. That, in fact, I really need you to help me to know what to do. I need to be in community. I need to be known. And I often need structures. We need discipleship plans. We need restoration plans. I need you to know where my shortcomings are. I need to know where yours are so we can hold one another accountable. Not to take advantage of you, but to build you up in godliness and righteousness. See, notice there's an element here of sharing in this passage that the scriptures teach us that your burdens are not just your burdens. Your weaknesses and strengths are not just your weaknesses and strengths. My burdens are not just mine. I need your help. I need to share them with you, and you need to share yours with me and with one another. This is the beauty of our groups. But there's a level of knowing and of being known that's meant to take place through the week that we actually celebrate and cultivate on Sunday when we're all together. That's accountability. Accountability is not about tearing down, it's about building up. It's it's about growing in interdependence. It's about growing in caring for one another and hopefulness. See, accountability then is this blend of truth and grace that empowers someone to walk in righteousness and toward restoration. Often I think we reject accountability because we think it's about tearing someone down or preventing them from growing the way that they're supposed to, when biblically it's just the opposite. We're meant to grow up in every way into Christ. Thirdly, perhaps direct confrontation is not the appropriate response. Perhaps just building better accountability structure is not the place. The third response that the Scriptures uh, give us in response to evil is boundaries, responding to evil with boundaries. So we have confrontation, accountability, and boundaries. Now, in some cases, the evil act may be unsafe for someone who has been offended to directly address by themselves. In fact, one of the poor ways, foolish ways that many religious leaders have directed those who have been hurt, particularly by intimate partner violence, they have told them based on Matthew 18, they need to go confront their abuser. And that is not true. That is not biblical. That does not take the full weight of what the Scriptures teach in mind. But it may need more also than just accountability. Let's make sure that there's more people around them so that they can share the load of responsibility or of power. See, simply addressing the evil or setting up better accountability is not always enough. Jesus actually goes on to say in Matthew 18, in verse 17, if he, that person who has sinned, refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, let's let's make sure we're hearing what Jesus is saying. In other words, boundaries are set on this person. And they are treated differently than they were treated before as a result of their unrepentant and egregious persistent sin. They were treated like believers, and now they're not. They were treated without stipulation or consideration in their church family. They were received wholeheartedly, and now they're not. They're treated as Gentiles and tax collectors. Not because they're any more broken than anybody else, but because they're persistent in their sin. They're not listening To confrontation. They're not listening to accountability. So boundaries are set in place. See, boundaries, though, are not weapons. They're not meant to hurt and to harm someone directly. They may hurt and harm someone, but that is not their purpose. Boundaries are actually an expression of love. Boundaries are markers of health used to protect, communicate, and by God's grace, even transform His people. Set in place for the sake of good. Set in place for the sake of care. Because when someone is a Gentile or tax collector, what do you do? Forget about them and leave it. No, you preach the gospel to them. This is someone behaving like an unbeliever. So it's not, get out of here, we never want to see you again. The boundary says you need to listen to the gospel. You obviously are not submitting to the gospel. You're not responding to accountability or confrontation. You're not humbling yourself on the side of the Lord. And so we're going to preach the gospel to you. We're going to treat you like a Gentile and say, hey, do you know Jesus? We'd love to tell you about him. Because if you knew him, you wouldn't be responding this way. So sometimes we need confrontation, sometimes we need accountability, sometimes we need boundaries. But lastly, we may also need separation. See, confrontation, accountability, and boundaries are healthy and loving responses. Sometimes the most um, egregious evil interpersonally that we face, sometimes there is only one other option which is rooted still in love and in health and it's necessary. In some cases, we need complete separation. And Paul actually did this. He and another missionary named Barnabas faced an irreconcilable discord at the start of Paul's second missionary journey. And in Acts 15, it's recorded this way, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Notice, they disagreed And I even think they likely tried to reconcile this thing, but they couldn't. They couldn't. I I don't know how many times I have been faced with this idea that Christians always kiss and make up. No, we don't. Sometimes we separate. Sometimes it's not right and good and healthy for us to be in the same group or the same community or the same church, right? And isn't it really good to know if that's the case, Church in the Square is not the only church in the area. And not like go somewhere else, but like thanks be to God, other wonderful, loving brothers and sisters and fellowships and churches who we love and partner with and love this city together, they can go and be fed and nurtured there. There's ways even that the Lord has organized His church, even in this city, that maybe separation is necessary and the Lord is still going to take care of you and take care of them. I know that might feel a little bit awkward, but I think there's a beauty in the diversity of God's church where one day all of that will be reconciled and all shall be well, But sometimes that day is not today. Paul and Silas had to depart. They likely tried to work it out, and they couldn't, so they had to separate. Now, there doesn't seem to be an explicit evil going on. I think what we had here is two leaders who could not agree whether or not to take Mark with them. See, Paul thought Mark was not going to be helpful. And Barnabas thought he's going to be a real asset to this. And so they separate and they go different ways to do ministry. So if this is true when there's just disagreement, how much more when there is persistent evil? How much more when there is sin? When articulating laws about rape in the Old Testament, Moses explains in Deuteronomy chapter 22, but if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. This is such an important text as a counterpoint to the way we often address intimate partner violence in particular, but a lot of egregious evil in general, is that if we only have Matthew 18, if we only say, you got to go tell them, you got to go confront them, or they just need better accountability, then we miss what it looks like to really protect the vulnerable, what it really looks like to protect those whom injustice has really taken advantage of. What this text says is that the woman does not need to address her accuser. This woman doesn't even need to go to her abuser. This man is put to death. This woman never has to speak to him again. The woman does not need to confront, seek accountability, set boundaries. She can separate completely, even to the point of death too often separation is not given as an option in religious communities because of our misunderstanding of what reconciliation in this life look like and our failure to see how broken evil is and unsafe it is for many people of course it should not be chosen unadvisedly we should not quickly get to separation but it may very well be the healthiest response that we have as a community or individually to sin and violations of our personhood and of our community I think it's important to mention, reconciliation is always desirable. When evil happens, particularly interpersonally, it's always desirable. We should always be working toward forgiveness, but forgiveness looks a lot different than maybe many of us have been taught. It does not always look like I'm sitting next to them at church next Sunday. It may not. I mean, isn't the story of our church, we've been four years, we've had to say a lot of goodbyes already. That's hard. Some of those not just because people have moved is because we have irreconcilable differences or sin has persisted. And we've had to set boundaries and accountability and even separation. Do you see we've actually learned to live like this as a church and it's hard. But I think what the Lord has done through that is he's made us a lot more healthy. Not perfect. I mean look who's preaching, not perfect. <laughs> but a lot more healthy. A lot more like Christ. We always want to look to forgiveness, and we always want to see evildoers repent, but these all move, if you will, in the aim of love. You see, these are not responses to evil when love doesn't work. These are what love looks like when evil shows up. Love confronts evil. Love holds evil accountable. Love sets boundaries on evil. Love separates from evil. Are you with me, church? This is what love looks like I think this is what our response will look like when, as Paul says, we give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all, what is good. Paul doesn't say do what's easy. He doesn't say do what makes everybody feel more comfortable, at least most people. Just do what's good. See, when we respond to evil in some unhealthy ways, here's the long and the short of it. Evil persists. And the hard truth is when we respond to evil in really healthy ways— Evil persists. Our hope then is not that we all respond the exact right ways every single time to evil. Our hope is that someone already has. Our hope is rather that we desire that our loving and righteous, healthy responses will usher in the fullness of Jesus' victory over evil. You see, we aren't the only ones who respond to evil thanks be to God. The Bible tells us that God responds to evil in a few ways, which we'll expound upon more next week. But for our consideration today, it's important for us to know, first and foremost, that God endures evil. In Christ, God is not aware, unaware rather of the pain that evil has caused, nor is He unaware of the challenges of resisting the urge to get even. He was even tempted on the cross by someone to get even. Bring down your angels if you're really the son of God, lay all this to waste if this is legitimately who you are. Get even if this is who you are. He endured evil, yet he never repaid evil for evil. The apostle Peter tells us that when he was riled, reviled rather, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He even resisted judging his offenders, his abusers, and he said, I'm going to leave judgment to the Lord. Specifically, as Jesus hung on the cross with the power and of that, of that formed the cosmos, he did not return evil words from his oppressors. He didn't respond to evil acts with evil actions, nor did he mirror even evil thoughts towards his enemies. He even prayed for them, Father, forgive them, they have no idea what they're doing. Jesus did not repay evil for evil. In fact, in a miraculous way, we're told that as Jesus hung on the cross, he was actually punishing evil. So Jesus endures evil, but he also punishes evil. might be an odd thing to conceive that as Jesus was dying, he was putting evil to death. But that's exactly what was happening. Paul told the Colossian church, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. See, evil and sin incur a debt. Namely, death. But in Christ, we have a substitute who dies a perfect death. In other words, a sinless death, a whole death in our place and for our sins. And so as evil thought it was winning, it was actually losing. Because in his death, Jesus is punishing evil. And through this punishment, he overcomes evil. See, he endures, he punishes, and he overcomes. Since in Christ, God both endured and punished evil, he also overcomes evil. That means evil is not in control. Evil will not win. All evil has and will finally meet its match in the love and truth and power and authority of Jesus Christ. That means the stories of abuse, shame, failure, discontent will not overwhelm you, my brother and my sister. The habits of addiction to money and food and sex and power, these will not overcome you in Christ. Because Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation, but what? Take heart, I've overcome the world. That means no temptation, no mistreatment, no sin, no mean word, no false identity, no injustice, no racist act, no act of violence, no greedy structure, no pain, no problem, no power, no suffering, no evil will overcome you, but in Christ God, because in Christ God has already overcome all of these things. There are many unhealthy ways to respond to all of this because it is hard, it is frustrating, and it hurts. But these will only foster more evil. In Christ, God then has given us the means and method of responding in healthy ways to evil, even though evil in this life will continue to persist. Our hope then is in God's response to evil, not in ours. That in Christ, evil has found its end. And so may we daily not return evil for evil with our emotion or without thinking, but may we give thought to respond to the evils of this world in the power of Jesus, the one who endured and the one who punished and the one who overcame evil on yours and my behalf. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We hate evil. We hate what it does. We hate that it persists. We hate even that it prevails in us every day in ways that are shameful and frustrating. So we need your help. We ask for your forgiveness, God, heal us. Forgive us, empower us, comfort us, take care of us. Left to ourselves, we don't respond well to this. I know I don't. My quick temper, in my pride, even in my veneers of righteousness, of believing that I am better than, all these only persist, persist the problem. And so, Father, help us to respond in accordance with your Spirit, in accordance with your Word, in justice, in love, with accountability and perhaps boundaries and separation and some really hard and challenging things, but nevertheless in a way that demonstrates the love and truth and power and authority of Jesus Christ. We pray especially for your church not only in Logan Square and in Chicago, but uh, around the world, Father. Would we respond to evil better? More biblically, more humbly, more courageously? Because we desire that the world would know that our God has responded to evil completely. He's endured evil punished evil, has overcome evil, and one day all shall be well, and there will be no more evil for evil because good will have swallowed it all up. So we long for that day. In Jesus' name, amen.